So hello, thank you for joining us for this episode of Bookable Space. I'm your host, Yvonne Battlefelton, and in this episode, we're joined by Chris Dickin, who will be reading to us from and talking about Dutch children of African-American liberators. Chris, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Real pleasure. Thank you. So we're just going to dive right in. So can you tell us a bit about Dutch children of African-American liberators? Yeah, let me tell you the evolution of this book because it, it's an interesting story and it, um, it continues to be an interesting story for me. This is a book about the European children of unknown and mystery World War II fathers, that is, soldiers and sailors and others who uh, were in Europe during World War II. And I myself am one of those children in the United States. In the United States during World War II, there were less than a million, maybe eight, eight or 900,000 children born illegitimately of soldiers and American women under the stresses of, of the time of war. And the book is essentially about European children of that same phenomenon, and specifically about the Afri the biracial European children of African-American fathers. But there's not a straight line from my situation to the uh, story of the book. I spent most of my career as a broadcaster, and after I left broadcasting, I took a turn into research and writing and storytelling and the kind of reporting I've been doing on radio and television and bringing it now to the printed word, where it's a lot easier to write a book than it is to produce a television program with 10 or 15 other people who have something they want to, you know, something they need to say and the things you have to do with video cameras and so on. And so... I started writing books, and eventually my writing took a turn into what I describe as the human elements of war. That is, the things that the human things that people brought to it, the human results that came from it. And one of my first books along those lines was uh, The Foreign Burial of America, the War Dead, which is about places all over the world where American war dead are buried that nobody knows about. They are sort of what had been forgotten or mysterious places. Everybody knows about war dead, American war dead buried in the ABM, American Battle Monuments Commission cemeteries like Normandy and, and all of those. But since 1804, there have been other Americans buried everywhere. And what the book was about was that approximately 1,200 of those, incidentally, are buried in the, in the United Kingdom. Right. And that, that resulted in, a, in another book, which was about Americans who have fought wars with foreign, the two world wars, essentially, as members of foreign forces. It is not well known that in both World War I and World War II, approximately 75,000 Americans and uh, members of American immigrant families fought with the British Commonwealth forces. They went off to war in the case of World War I. They started going to war in 1914 through Canada, largely. 
and the United States didn't enter World War I until 1917. And the course of writing and researching those books, which took me to Europe a lot and to England, I met my co-author for the book that we're talking about now, who's Mika Kirkles is her name, and she lives currently in Leiden in the Netherlands. She is a public historian in the Netherlands. And she uh, and others there have increasingly become central to the research, discovery, and commemoration of African-American soldiers in World War II Netherlands. As you may or may not know, a, a Black soldier in World War II and in World War I was relegated to service things, driving trucks, digging cemeteries. And, and the book that we're talking about now has a, a biography of one of those uh, grave diggers who became a very distinguished uh, educator in Connecticut. And Mika did a lot of work along those lines and, and still does. But in the course of that work, she sort of discovered that in the Netherlands, there was a group of biracial adult children of African-American men who had been there in the liberation of the Netherlands, which began in 1944, and in the years, a couple of years subsequent to that. And she, she discovered, she sort of discovered them. She, in working with them and eventually writing a book about it, which in the Netherlands is still available, it's called Kindred Van Zwart, Bed Riders, excuse my Dutch. She helped them to form a community with each other and to find out that there were other people like them there in, in the Netherlands, which is something that they had not, uh, really hadn't known. But we'll maybe come back to that. The book that we're talking about, Children of uh, African American, Dutch Children of African American Liberators, is co-written by Mika and myself. It's ba it's an American version of her Dutch book with the addition of American history and context and the American history of racism and, and Jim Crow and that whole thing, especially in the U.S. military where Jim Crow was alive and well in World War II in the U.S. military. It was perhaps even more so than he was in, in World War One, And Mika had started the thing from the Dutch perspective and the European perspective, and I was able with her to bring that American historical perspective. So that's the book that we're talking about, which is, when we get down to it, about the stories of 12 people in the Netherlands and their whole their life stories as biracial children of African-American soldiers. I put that aside for a minute. One day, as, as I was driving through rural France, I was researching my biography of the poet, the American poet soldier, Alan Seeger, who's best known for his poem, I Have a Rendezvous with Death. He was killed at the Battle of the Somme as a member of the French Foreign Legion in uh, 1916. And I was, I was driving through the villages outside of Rheims, uh, France, one day, and, and I realized what I was doing, that in, in writing these books about the human experience of war, 
I was trying to find my father. That's perhaps too dramatic, but I was learning of his experience. I was investigating, researching, because I knew nothing about him except a couple of little things. I didn't know his name, nothing, nothing else. I was trying to sort of find my father and his experience in writing these books about war. And that leads us now to, with Mika, writing a book about these children in the Netherlands who are trying to figure out who their fathers were. And that's how we got to the book that we're talking about now. I love that. Could we have our first reading from the book, please? We can. And these, these would be the first paragraphs of the book. And I think they set the they set the scene for what it is we're talking about. As the years played out, there would be no doubt that Letty Wetzel, a young woman of Dutch Limburg, and Edward Moody, a biracial young man of New Jersey, had conceived a child in genuine romance. They had met in the first months of the liberation of the Netherlands. It was a turbulent time, and the province was partying. The women of Limburg and the men of the U.S. Army had gotten together for the whole range of reasons that men and women had sex, good and bad. Some of the men had been black, and the couples formed had overcome the strenuous effort, especially of the American military command, to keep them apart or to put them out of reach of, uh, out of reach of each other if their relationships became known. After learning of the pregnancy, Edward and Lenny had gotten married or attained what was to them an approximation of marriage. It was now September 5th, 1945. And their child, also to be named Ed Moody, would be born in just a few days, but they would never see each other again. He had been transferred from here, the village of here, right after the wedding, and she had moved to her uncle's house in Hasselt, Belgium. And all she could learn for sure was that he would be returning to America on a troop ship from Antwerp, where now she stood searching for him on a quay of the Scheldt River. Ed Moody was one of an estimated 70 biracial children born in the Limburg province of the Netherlands at the end of World War II. Their lives would often be ambiguous and conflicted. Their skin color caused them to be called by many others, the little Americans, though they most often knew nothing of their biological fathers and their American origin. As they grew, they might have heard something of the fleeting contact of their parents, or they might have heard nothing at all or something that was not true. Each was born into a unique situation. Some were immediately given up to other caretakers or placed in Catholic orphanages of varying quality. Some would have a single mother or eventually a stepfather who could be loving or abusive. And in some cases, a man whose wife had been unfaithful to him while he was away at war. Some would be accepted into large, loving families of half-siblings. Just three would end up eventually touching the shore of their father's America. Just one would experience the embrace of her father's arms. The book, I'm, I'm talking now, the book tells the full story of 12 of these Netherlands children, meant to be as representative uh, representative of the stories of the other children of World War II American soldiers born in Europe. Here's some figures. All of these are estimates. We, we can have no definitive figures in all of this. The estimate is that in England, 
22,000 children were conceived by British women and American soldiers in the course of World War II, perhaps 1,700 of them biracial. And remember that in England, we're not just after the war, Americans began to come to England and as the United States got into the war and stayed behind in the years after the war as things were being sorted out. In Germany, there's an estimate of 90,000 children of American soldiers born into the mid-1950s, remembering that we, the United States, the Allies, stayed in Germany until things got settled there in the 1950s. Perhaps 3,000 of those were biracial. In Austria, the estimates range from eight to 30,000, it's a wide range of this, of so-called occupation children, perhaps 500 of them biracial. And in the Netherlands, the estimate is 8,000 so-called liberation children, most of them of Canadian fathers. Uh, Canada was very instrumental in the aftermath of war for the Netherlands and its recovery from the war. And Canadians were beloved in, in the Netherlands for uh, their work after the war. But there were, the estimate in the Netherlands is all that we can reasonably know about is 70 to 100 children of African-American fathers. I have no idea whether that's a minimal, minimal, or whether that's accurate. All of these children are or have recently been in the last years of lives that I think it's fair to describe as unresolved and confusing. Confusing in large part because the the presence of of American racism that they represented in societies that had little previous experience with it. And by that, I mean that in the Netherlands, for example, and in Limburg, and in the group of people that we're talking about in the book, uh, many people up until 1944 had never seen a black person in their lives. And they had just been occupied by the Nazis. And the Nazis told them that black people had tails and they had children and long, you know, all of that stuff. So that when black People began to show up in the Netherlands in the American Liberation Force. This was Liberation and Rehabilitation Force. They hadn't seen them before. They, there's an example given in the book of the uh, biography of one of the, I mentioned earlier, of the grave digger, who he and his fellows would come and grave to dig the graves every morning, and the, and the children would gather at a distance and and watch them curiously and and over the days would become more comfortable or less fearful of these black people and uh, at one time one of them touched my jefferson wiggins is the fellow's name and the story we're telling touched him and of course immediately looked at her own hand to see if the black had rubbed off. Mm. We have a, we, another one of the subjects uh, of the book had as, as a young experience who was finally given to his, his mother didn't want anything to do with him. It's a whole other story. And um, she found an old woman somewhere in the Netherlands to take care of him. And the old woman 
she would repeatedly put him in the bathtub and scrub him to try to see if this whatever it was went away. This was this was the experience that these children were uh, born into. I'll stop there with that. But what we're talking about and what I hope comes out in, in the book is the American racism. Let's talk about racism in general, but we're talking about American racism here and the whole history of that going back to the beginning and indeed going back to the 1600s. You know, the Dutch were responsible for Manhattan and New York City. And uh, the Dutch were also very heavily into the slave trade in the 16 and 1700s and so on. And the, so what we do in the book is we go back to 1600 and what happened and the racial attitudes and practices and philosophies starting at that time as they filtered up through Dutch society and American society and finally came to a conclusion of some sort in 1944, 1945, when Black Americans ended up in, the, in, and we're just trying to show, I think, how what happens in, in 1600 has an effect on the life of a child born in 1945 in Maastricht in the, in the Netherlands. And that's, that's what, what it's about. Could we have another reading, please? Uh, you're in England. And I would commend to those listening to go on YouTube and look for something called A Welcome to Britain, 1943. It's a U.S. Army training film with the uh, movie star Burgess Meredith. And it is all about half-hour film in which U.S. troops were, it was explained to them what the British were like and why they drank warm beer and all that kind of stuff. And it had a little smidge about British racial attitudes. And when the Americans came to England in, in the earlier years of the war, the Black Americans were very well accepted. And if you look at that whole history of a few years of the war and the aftermath of the war, I, an education I get is that the British government was officially wide open to these Black people, Black Americans in their midst, but in back channels, it wasn't. Uh, British society was very tolerant and, and open and non-racist I think genuinely so in the early years, but then became more typically racist in the, into the middle and late 1940s. And if British will know, in particular, the story of the Windrush generation, there, I, I submit that, and we talk about Windrush in the book kind of extensively, that the experience of Black Americans and their children of World War II in Britain was similar to what happened in the Windrush generation. Let me read some from the book on that. In England, the American civil rights activist W.E.B. Du Bois led an effort by attendees of the Pan-African Congress of 1945 to create awareness of the problem, uh, that problem being black, the, uh, black children who are now in England and to enlist the American NAACP in finding a solution. 
Other black leaders based in England undertook similar efforts that would consider overriding the Adoption Act, which forbade the adopting out of British children to non-British subjects. Of the Adoption Act, out of necessity and promoting adoption of the children to American families, that is, that should not take place. The efforts came to nothing, and among Britons who cared about the matter, the discussion ranged from the undesirability of sending the children to a country they knew to be discriminatory in law and behavior to how doing so might reflect on the country's challenged relationship with the African and West Indies colonies. Then, in August 1947, the London Daily Mail reported sensationally and wrongly that a chartered ocean liner was being prepared to transport, quote, 5,000 dusky problem babies to America. The story was repeated in the American press and served the rhetoric of those in the U.S. who had been talking about the children from racist and right-wing positions. Their tone was often virulent and promoted through pamphlets like 20,000 Little Brown Bastards, distributed by a disciple of the segregationist Huey Long. In the U.S. House of Representatives, Mississippi Congressman John A. Rankin talked of the illegitimate half-breed Negro children from England, the offspring of the scum of the British Isles. Another and most natural step toward bringing some of the children to America lay in the very fact of parental connection, but it was blocked in at least two respects. Some African-American fathers were willing and wanted to bring their children to America, but British law did not recognize them as their legal fathers, and the U.S. military was not interested in helping. Many of the men would be willing to marry the women with whom they had a child, and the sense of the conference on the children of Black Americans was that Black men were more willing than white men to step up to that obligation. But they would have to live in the United States, where sex and marriage between the races was forbidden by anti-miscegenation laws of most states. For most of the brown babies of England, growing up would require the dual task of arriving at one's own individuality while overcoming seemingly endless implications of their otherness as children who lived just outside the usual nurture of society. The most fortunate were those who stayed with already existing families formed by the mother, her husband, and other existing or future children born of the couple. To get to that result, however, the child would have to survive a temptation by some families to choose an easier, easier path of adoption out. That accomplished, the next hurdle was the husband's acceptance of what had occurred and the way in which it would affect his own relationship with the child. Without a lot of documentation, most writing about the era suggests that many men did indeed accept the responsibilities of fatherhood in extraordinary circumstances, but many did not or did so grudgingly or used the child as a recurring weapon in a troubled marriage. If the family did ultimately succeed in staying together, the biracial child would always be a reminder and a sign within a circle of friends and family and within the larger community. In some cases, the biracial baby became darker as the years passed, and many would find that the perception of cute novelties as young children wore off as they became teenagers. Ultimately, the children of white American soldiers would blend into British society. 
the children of Black American soldiers would always stand out, as would their mothers and stepfathers. But let me say that during this time, the African American newspapers in the United States were more numerous and active than they are now. And there were some very significant newspapers in Detroit and Philadelphia and other places that had great influence on the African-American community and state. And, and many of these newspapers picked up on this particular problem in England. And there was a lot of discussion about whose responsibility these children were. And one of the newspapers, for example, in Germany, was talking about the biracial children in Germany and began to name them and give the addresses of the people who were taking care of them with the notion of sending them assistance. And it was not, no, it was not for, for bad intent. And, and as near as I could tell, it didn't work out badly. I don't know how long that kind of thing went on. But what I'm saying is, Post-war, there was a lot of discussion in the African-American community in the United States about their responsibility for the European children who were in, the children left behind in Europe. And that sort of dissipated as time went, went on. There's a whole lot of very interesting material in that whole history that we couldn't even begin to touch on here. Uh, Bob Ranger from Albert Schweitzer to a movie that was produced in Germany with a little biracial girl as its heroine. And, but that's a, that's a lot of discussion, or it's in the book, if you want to take it from there. And that's Germany. And I think Germany is, is very representative of a whole lot of things about this, uh, this whole story. It sounds like you all did an awful extensive, like a lot of research in, you know, compiling the book. And I'm really curious, what is something that might have surprised you throughout the research or something that you learned through readers that you weren't expecting? I'll tell you what, what the surprise was for me, and I, and I hope we take time to for one more reading, but the, the surprise was for me that as Mika and I, Mika Kirkles and I, were finishing the last chapters of this book, my own mystery father's identity was revealed to me. Yeah, right. Wow. I think, okay, this makes sense. What I had been doing was I started to write these books in part looking for my unknown father. And so now I'm getting to the end of this book about all these people looking for their unknown fathers. And it was on Christmas Day in 2018 that my half-sister appeared in my DNA Look at results, and my father was identified, and that brought home for me even even more what I thought I had been finding with the Dutch children and in my writing about. We all want to know who we are, and part of that is knowing who we came from. The Dutch children, every one of them of the 12 that we write about, every one of them spent a lifetime trying to figure this out. They went about it in different ways. They, they had support, and some were fortunate enough to have the support of their caretakers. Others, a number of them ended up in dreadful orphanages. 
offered up by the Catholic Church, which brought its own sense of morality to all of this. But all of them, and a couple of them attempted suicide. For all of them, it was, who's my father? And when Mika, with her work and her, her Dutch book on this, began to bring them together, they began to learn of their, maybe not who their specific father was, but what their father came from and what he had had to deal with and the whole history of, of the racist environment in the United States that he had grown up in, which mirrored their experience growing up in the Netherlands as children and was largely a result of sort of an import of the American experience into uh, the Netherlands social experience. And I was struck by that, it just brought back to me again, I had spent my whole life, however I could do it, writing books, driving around France, <laughs> trying to figure out who my father was. And I finally found out who he was. I found out he had been in the Merchant Marines. And I was able to find out his travels from 1942 to 1947 all over the world. And I found out that though I had been born in New York City and grown up in Cleveland, Ohio. I had moved to where I am now in 1978 to take a job in broadcasting. And my father had been had grown up 50 miles from where I've been living in the lower Chesapeake Bay since 1978. That's the way life is and stories are and things that really go in circles and so on. Can I do one more reading? Yes, please. This, is, this gets to the children in the Netherlands. One of the people in the book is a fellow named Henry Van Landingham. Henry was an African-American fellow who ended up in World War II as a driver for the Red Ball Express. The Red Ball Express is, was a, a trucking project that started right after the Normandy invasion it was meant to get supply, military and living supplies and food and sustenance stuff from the new landing in France, where things could now come in, in deeper into Europe towards Germany as the American forces kept moving towards Berlin to conclude the war. And the Red Ball Express was a group that was set up by Eisenhower, it was a precursor to the American interstate highway system. That's a whole other story. But it was trucks driven mostly by African-American men constantly, nonstop. If there were two guys in a truck, they would change driver and passenger while they were doing 60 miles an hour because they couldn't stop. And it was to supply your, and it went on for about four months or so, but it also supplied the little towns and villages and so on of Europe along the way, including the Netherlands. And Henry Van Landingham was one of these Red Bull Express drivers. And one of the people in the, in the book is his Dutch daughter, Els, and his American daughter, Arzema, who lives in Florida. Now, and I was able to spend some time with Arzema and I spent some time with El's uh, son in the Netherlands and so on. And when I talked to Arzema, that's when it came, understood more dramatically the way racism works and the difference 
in good old American racism and what had the children had to deal with in Europe. So we're picking up here on a discussion I'm having with Arzama. Racism had always been part of the mix, but as a motivator, Arzama had learned it from her father as a matter of course. That was how I was brought up. You had to be twice as good to get the same results out of the system because you were black. You have to put effort into it and realize that just because you have the credentials and can show them that you know more than they know, really, you have to be able to handle that diplomatically. You, as a black person, just become bicultural. You're kind of this person in your community and you're that person in the white community. And in her community, the biracial situation in which her family now found itself with the discovery of this Dutch daughter of Henry Van Lanningham was also of interest, but not ultimately important. You have white people in your family and your community, and that's okay. The fact that they're half white or all white is irrelevant. It doesn't come into play. You mention it, you talk about it. It's in your conversation, but not in a negative way. Els, the Dutch daughter, had been born into circumstances that had no history, no traditions that were spoken or unspoken, and no pathways to success or failure. There were no guidelines toward a biracial concept of herself. She was not supposed to seem different from others, but she was. She was loved by her mother and by her stepfather, who accepted her as the child of his wife's infidelity. Quote, Hake was really a beautiful person, said Arzema. She was accepted in the village of Bergen Terblitz, and the hairdresser's comments about the difficulties of dealing with her hair were an observation, but not a complaint. Her brothers had always protected her when she persisted in searching for her father and finally came close to finding him. However, one of them, for whatever reasons, demanded that she drop the pursuit and had cut off contact with her when she would not. After that, they would never talk again. The Wells had told Arzama before she died, and years before the coming together of the rest of the adult children of African-American soldiers in 2015 and 2016, that she thought she had been the luckiest of them all. She had always struggled. When she was growing up, she could be in a room with others, feeling that she did not belong there. She wasn't supposed to be there. And she needed to disappear, but she couldn't because of her skin color. You'd see a picture of her with her brothers and sisters, and you'd say, who is this child? So she wanted to make herself disappear, either physically or psychologically. And she said she thought that people were going to come and take her away. So it was very important to her to figure out who the hell she was. She spent time and effort. I mean, you don't go to the Army and several departments and rejections and letters and calls and all that, as Els did to find her father. If, it's, if that's not important to you, I think she was more comfortable here that she had family here in Florida. And we loved her and accepted her. And it wasn't like we were pretending. A few weeks after her last visit to Buffalo, the call came from the Netherlands that Els was dying of ovarian cancer. Arzama and her sister-in-law hurried across the ocean to see her one last time. She was told that Elsie had been waiting for her to arrive, and she recognized Arzama and could say no more. She died that night. Talking about it years later, Arzama wept. Somebody comes and enriches your life, and then they're gone, you know? And I think that's the story, the human story, what this book is all about. 
What a beautiful place to to end the reading. And and thank you so much for, for sharing that with us. Can I ask you, where can we go to buy Dutch Children of African American Liberators? Uh, it's the best place is, is Amazon. It's published in the United States by McFarland uh, Publishing. But I have an author page on Amazon. Uh, just go to Amazon and put in my name and you'll find it. The uh, My co-author is Mika, M-I-E-K-E, Kirkles, K-I-R-K-E-L-S. But it's easy to find on Amazon and some other places. Wonderful. Chris, thank you so much for being our guest, for reading to us and talking about the book and for just bringing it to our lives. So thank you. It was my great pleasure, Yvonne. Thank you.